0: This is Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm your host, Dr. Jocelyn Lebo, a clinical child and adolescent psychologist at Mayo Clinic's Rochester campus. Despite the fact that the DSM-5 gives clear-cut pictures of what eating disorders look like, in actuality, all clinicians know that it's rare to get a straightforward case in your office. Patients come in with comorbidities and family circumstances that muddy the clinical picture and the treatment plan. This is true regardless of where you practice or how experienced you are. This episode is the sixth in our eating disorders edition, focused on how primary care physicians can identify and treat children with eating disorders. For this episode, I've asked two of my colleagues, Dr. Angela Mackey and Dr. Paige Partain, to join me in a discussion of some of their more complicated eating disorder cases, to discuss what went right and what had to be adjusted on the fly in the assessment and treatment of these patients. Dr. Angie Mackey and Dr. Paige Partain are two pediatricians at the Mayo Clinic Children's Center and two of my close colleagues and collaborators in the Mayo Clinic Primary Care Child and Adolescent Eating Disorder Clinic. Thank you guys for joining us today. Happy to be here. I'm happy to
1: be talking about one of our favorite topics today. So I'm excited. (laughs) And we love cases.
0: That's right. And these, I want these to be juicy ones. So obviously every case is different. Every case has its own unique challenges, but there are kind of like flavors of patients, right? Like these profiles of kids we see over and over again that kind of throw us or aren't straightforward. So today, just for everyone listening, I made Angie and Paige go back and find some really interesting, really tough cases that challenge them but that I think are common enough that probably you're going to see it in your office too. I wanted to really dig into what they did with these cases with no judgment at all. Angie, do you want to go first? Do you want to talk about a case first? What do you sure. got for us? Yeah, my first case was
1: one of the first patients I started seeing that did have an an eating disorder, but at the beginning, it really wasn't clear. So this patient presented really with failure to grow. And I'm just going to try and use they and them pronouns to really try and de-identify the patient. They previously tracked at 75th percentile for weight. So I know clinicians would like to think about growth charts, but then at age 11 to 14, they didn't gain a single pound. They went three years with no weight gain, and as you can imagine, their percentiles dropped very very precipitously from 75th percentile on weight all the way down to 11th. And BMI previously tracked between 50 and 75th percentile, and they dropped all the way down to second percentile. So this caught their primary care provider's attention, and they appropriately started talking to other people and collaborating to try and figure out what was going on. Because in the beginning, there wasn't really a lot of symptoms. They had asked the patient about eating behaviors. They had asked about GI symptoms. They'd asked about psychological things. And there wasn't a whole lot that was coming up. This provider had started a GI evaluation appropriately because, you know, every pediatrician and family medicine provider starts thinking about like celiac disease and inflammatory bowel disease and other things when kids aren't growing, especially when they're not giving you a whole lot of restrictive behaviors. Then that provider brought this patient to me and I said, could this patient have an eating disorder? And I said... Absolutely. Because in the beginning, <laughs> patients never are going to come out. Well, rarely will come out and say, I don't like the way I look. I've been restricting. I am afraid of certain foods, all that jazz. Um, I think and I've that- only
2: had one or two patients actually do that. Would they <laughs> <me>? <laughs> I would say the vast majority probably don't, just like right. the one you're describing.
0: This was like a mystery of how this kind of failure to thrive. Okay. Keep going. Sorry. So you've got this patient and then what did you do?
1: So it doesn't hurt to start trying and refeeding them. And usually once you start to try and refeed them and you try to implement family-based treatment, it's kind of like poking the bear. If you poke the bear enough, usually some symptoms are going to come out. And if symptoms don't come out and they have... No problem eating as much food as you give them and they have no concerns with it. They don't have an eating disorder. They will usually just be like, okay, fine. Yeah, I want to gain weight. Mom, I want more food. Give me more. You're not giving me enough. And that is not what an eating disorder patient's gonna have. And that is not what this patient had. It was basically like a light switch flipped and they were refusing to eat food, avoiding meals, and then started having some like kind of weird behavior. So it became pretty clear at that point this patient had an eating disorder. This patient had to have extensive scopes and be, and one of their celiac markers came back a little bit concerning. They actually had to have MR enterography. They got the clean bill of health from GI and also they, they were gaining weight all of a sudden. So it seemed very clear that a child who doesn't have a malabsorption process going on, they can't gain weight if they have a malabsorption process basically going on.
0: Let me ask you this. So basically you diagnose this almost through like, let's just try it and see, right? Let, mm-hmm. Let's just try to get them. To, and mm-hmm. is there a downside to that? If you have a kid who's fallen off their growth curve without an eating disorder and you're mm-hmm. like, let's just get you to eat. Yeah. Can that cause harm? Can there be a downside to that? I don't think there's ever a downside to it because clearly the child is
1: presenting with malnutrition and you need to correct the malnutrition regardless of the cause. I don't care if it's an eating disorder or it's an inflammatory bowel disease picture, a celiac di- picture. This child's had iron deficiency anemia they had um, vitamin d deficiency and they also had low calcium levels and so there was clearly like actual measurable concerns that were um, as a result of malnutrition so it's not going to hurt to refeed them and if they have like celiac disease and you're feeding them with celiac yeah they might have more symptoms or if they have inflammatory bowel disease they might have more diarrhea if that was the case but it's not gonna be a problem and if it's an eating disorder you're actually giving them the treatment they need which
0: is food Okay. I love this. So here's another question. How do you sell this? How do you sell this to the family? Especially if you're still ruling out all these things, was there a difference between, you know, a patient who came in being like, I don't want to gain weight. Who, it was clearly anorexia. How did you sell it to family? I didn't have
1: to, this patient's behavior sold it for me. I guess how I sold it was look at their growth chart. And the, the most concerning thing about this patient's growth part chart is that they weren't growing. So they weren't gaining weight, but it started to affect their height velocity. And that usually catches attention of families, especially if it's a male sex, because that seems like still such a cultured thing in our society that boys need to be tall and they can't, they can't be short. And so that is what really was the hook for this family. I said, I'm concerned we need to feed this kid. And, and right now I think the only way that we can refeed him because we've let him do it by himself for three years and look where we've gotten ourselves. We need you to step in and take over. Because he clearly cannot do this. And I don't know if it's an eating disorder at this point, but we need to get nutrition in him. And you have been making him do things his entire life he doesn't want to do, and you can do this. And they were on board. And as soon as they started seeing his behaviors, they were like, yeah, he's got an eating disorder. We totally, we totally
0: get on board. And I think for the primary care provider, this is something where, for me as a psychologist, this is a harder sell, but this is where you guys are so powerful. This is a medical intervention. There are mm-hmm. medical issues here. He is not growing. You need to feed him. It is my medical opinion mm-hmm. as opposed to, you know, I waltz in there with all my like feelings and psychology things. It's, <laughs> it's going to be a harder sell, right. right? I, I love I that. The
1: biggest cell was his height velocity. Mm-hmm. Definitely the biggest cell. And it was also, you can bring into the fact of he might not reach his adult height if we do not intervene. So if you look at across the world when there's been um, famine, malnutrition, war, you have whole generations of people that are very stunted in their growth because they did not receive proper nutrition during a critical part of their growth and development. And I did talk about that with them and they were just like, I'm on board because this person was also an athlete. So that was also uh, something that was really part of their value system. The other thing we ran into with this patient is that we were running up against puberty. Refeeding this patient put them into puberty, which was great, but we also had to counteract all of the different calorie requirements. And so it was an ongoing process. And this patient gained 30 kilograms over the course of two years and ended up back on their previous growth velocity for both weight and achieved their mid-parental height velocity, which is 75th percentile after they finished growing. So incredible! um, a long, really long process. And this family was so committed and so continually
0: exhaustive to have to be refeeding your child for two years, but they did an incredible job. You added like an elementary school child to their weight. That's incredible. Mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. chasing that height is really, really, really hard because it's not just about their weight curve. It's about that BMI curve as well. Mm-hmm.
2: What a great yeah. case. When You asked uh, too about like the harms of trying, the harms of refeeding. Particularly when I think about that as a pediatrician, we're always taught when we think about failure to grow or gain weight, that the vast majority of the time it's nutritionally related, it's intake related. So I sort of view that as one of my interventions or sort of one of my pieces of the workup. It's sort of like, let's do a trial process and see what happens. And if I can prove that with some really intensive monitoring of meals, this patient starts to gain weight, that's extra information the same way a lab test is extra information. Awesome. That was such a great case, Angie. Paige, what about you? What do you have for us? I think some of the more challenging cases that I've dealt with, come in the context of evaluations for mood or concerns from a mental health standpoint. So when I think back, actually similarly to Angie, it was one of my very first cases where I diagnosed an eating disorder. It was a patient who came in, a teenage girl, we'll call her Natalie. She comes in to see me for mood concerns, more so parents noticing just sort of disinterest in things, kind of lower energy levels, as we see with many teenage patients, a lot of irritability. And rightfully so, parents said, hey, I think we should make an appointment, come in, have you evaluated. I spent a little bit of time talking with the patient and her family. And then as we typically do, had the parents step out and kind of got a little bit more information from the patient on her own. And this was one of those evaluations that I sort of, I kept asking questions and there wasn't really a clear picture for me. You know, I saw some of these symptoms of depression that I expect to see. I wasn't seeing all of them. The patient was just overall kind of even keeled without a lot of affect changes. And I like to sit facing the patients when I'm doing these evaluations and I'll kind of have one hand on the computer over to the side and occasionally click or look at something. And I recall clicking over to the growth chart as I was talking with this patient and then suddenly seeing, oh my gosh, (laughs) she's lost 20 pounds since last summer. And this is in the dead of Minnesota winter. So I'm looking at over several months. And so I finished sort of the questions that we were talking about at that point. And I said, you know, one thing I'm noticing when I look back. Back is there's some weight loss? Looking like even last summer, quite a significant weight loss. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Was that something that you were doing? Intentionally and the patient actually looked, she looked kind of surprised. She was like, Oh, yeah, actually, I think back in the summer I was really trying to get in shape because I had a sports season coming up. And I just really wanted to try to like get more fit. I was doing a little more cross training and weightlifting. And at this point, when we fast forward, they're done with their season and out of the athletic season, but they were able to sort of look back and say, Oh, yeah, those were some purposeful changes that I made. And when I asked a few more questions related to the eating, because Appetite's one of the key symptoms of depression. So I'm trying to get a sense of what's going on. They said, I'm just not hungry. And it sounded like on a regular basis, he was only getting... One meal a day, really, sort of waking up late, running out the door to get to school, at school, maybe eating a few bites of something over lunch, and then really not having anything until dinner time. And even at dinner time, probably a little bit less than I would typically expect for a growing teenager. So I think at that point, I had to sort of change my approach to the visit because I certainly wanted to get a bit of a sense of what was going on mood-wise, which I had, and I definitely had some concerns for depressed mood, but I needed to spend a little bit more time now actually getting the parents' perspective on what was going on with the eating because I feel like in particular with eating disorders, so often the teenagers maybe see a little bit or have a little bit of insight about what may be going on with changes, but very often what their observations are can be very different from what the parents are telling you. And interestingly, even though it wasn't a concern that the mother brought up in the beginning of the visit, when I brought mom back in the room and I said, hey, you know, we've been talking a little bit about what's been going on with Natalie's eating. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? Have you noticed any changes over the last several months? And mom went. Oh, yes. I've really noticed that she's been eating kind of differently, you know, like she's been eating really healthy and eating a lot of salads. I was really proud of her, you know, that wasn't something that she did a lot of before. So I thought that was like a really good thing. But now that you mention it, I feel like she's not really eating very much. So I've kind of noticed now that she doesn't seem very hungry. And even at dinner time, she's not even finishing the plate that I give her. And so it was one of those things that was sort of hiding in the background. And then when I got sort of a little inkling of it and took out the shovel and started digging a little bit, (laughs) all of a sudden way more issues started coming to the surface. I think this happens a ton where we get mood and eating concerns. Was it your
0: sense that the eating sort of predated the mood stuff or that she backed into this eating
2: disorder in the context of her mood? How did this happen? I've seen both, but I think in this patient's case, it was probably the eating symptoms that started first. They were sort of benign changes that happened at the start, you know, during the summer when she had a little more time on her hands and she was off school and she was trying to get ready for her sports season. In that case, the restriction really clearly started to happen and the eating changes clearly started to happen before the mood pieces, because she could pretty easily go back and tell me that the mood changes dated to like kind of the winter Mm -hmm. Um, and the weight loss and the restriction had kind of started in, in summertime and into the fall. I think in this case, it was really pretty clear that the eating symptoms happened first and then subsequently mood really started to decline. This is another really hard sell to families. They come in worried about their kid's mood. Mm -hmm. How
0: did you get them on board with shifting focus to treating the eating?
2: Yeah, I think in some ways it's not actually as hard of a sell as I often feel like it will be because parents I find in these scenarios are really craving the ability to do something for their child. They want to be able to do something to help. And very often when it comes to mood concerns and we're thinking about things like visits with therapists or medications, there's sort of a limited amount that the parent feels like they can do. And so when I bring up a concern and I say, Hey, you know, I'm seeing signs of depression. I diagnosed her with depression. I said, but one of the things that I'm worried about when I look at this is I'm really concerned that what's going on with her weight is at the very least making her depression worse. I sort of had in the back of my mind, I think this may be one of the primary causes actually, when I look at the timeline, but I said, I know that this is making things worse. We have really good medical research that shows us that starvation changes the chemical balance in our brains. And I'll, I'll often give them sort of a crash course in the Minnesota starvation study, recognizing that we had this really clear medical experiment that showed us when people were denied the calories that they needed for their basic nutrition, they started to develop symptoms of depression, anxiety, etc. I can sort of see their brains change and their faces kind of start to process things when I bring up that study and they start to recognize, oh, wow. Okay. So this is something that regardless of the history is probably contributing right now. And I find that the parents very often kind of latch onto that. They're like, okay, I can do that. This is something they've been doing since their child was young, feeding their child. And so, you know, very often they've taken a back seat as the kid gets older, appropriately so, but giving them something really concrete and saying, let's try to put some extra nutrition in this kid. Let's make sure you're getting breakfast, lunch, and dinner at a bare minimum. And I really want to get in some snacks throughout the day too. It's something really concrete. And very often the parents are like, yes, okay, I can do that. <laughs> Give me something. Angie, you had one too about
0: a comorbid psych stuff, right, with mm-hmm. with eating. Do you want to talk a little bit about your experience with this?
1: Yeah, I think it happens a lot of the time. And so many of the examples that we've seen over the past two years have kind of the COVID-19 shelter in place pandemic was the start that changed so much of the way that our teens were functioning and just disrupted everything for them and it was kind of an impetus to kind of disrupt their mood, their routines, their anxiety, and their eating behaviors because they didn't leave their bedroom. They sat in their bedroom all day for school, for their meals, for their sleep when they were on TikTok, like they didn't leave their bed. And so <laughs> I'm sure every primary care provider listening is like, yep, mm-hmm, I, re- mm-hmm. I remember that. So I have a couple different examples of that. One of the ones that I want to start talking about, it was a female. It was the start of the COVID-19 pandemic. And this patient started to become more withdrawn and much more anxious. And her family was concerned about both mood and anxiety. And so they started her seeing a the therapist. But they also noticed that she started to have kind of decreased appetite and really struggled with eating. And this persisted to the point that she started skipping meals as well. The one little different part about this patient is that she had a history of cyclic vomiting syndrome that was pre-morbid to the diagnosis when she came to see me. And this had been going on for many different years. And, and as a result of this appetite, suppressed appetite, she would kind of develop this cycle where she'd think if she would eat, she would get nauseous, then she'd get nauseous and very suddenly vomit. Um, and it really wasn't cyclic vomiting syndrome. It was more of like a eating disorders behavior than anything else because vomiting is repetitive episodes of MSS And it would be one episode and done. And it was usually preceded by all these thoughts and feelings and
0: avoidance that related to food. I see this a lot in, in my mm-hmm. practice too. And I think it's important to note, this is different than induced vomiting, right? This is mm-hmm. different than somebody who's self inducing vomiting. But these kids, some of them are so anxious and they are feeling overly full, especially if they have a history of being like easy barfers. They can work themselves up to the point where they really mm-hmm. do physically make themselves sick. And it can mm-hmm. be after every meal. For parents, that is so hard to deal with. Mm-hmm. How did you coach parents? What did you have to add to yeah. your treatment plan for this? I
1: would just add, before I jump to that, is she actually went on to develop symptoms of anorexia. And it wasn't (laughs) just this vomiting up to three hours after a meal. As her avoidance cycle with food kind of got worse and her appetite decreased, she started to develop preoccupation with her weight and her body and started compensating for exercise and punishing herself. Um, So when she came to see me, it became pretty clear that she had anorexia at this point. What we did is we started FBT. So we started (laughs) family-based therapy, primary care. And um, I told family that they had to take over all the meals and the snacks, like we've been talking about in all of these episodes. But with her, she was going to vomit, right? And she would always say to them, if you give me any more, I'm going to vomit. And they would try and distract her and use all these other different techniques. But if she did vomit, we're like, oh, okay, you vomited, no big deal, kind of very minimal reaction. I'm like, Now you need to eat, we need to have you eat again, because that's your medicine. And you vomited part of your medicine. And that's the same thing we would do if a patient vomited their medicine up with 15 minutes, we'd say you have to redose them because that they need all the doses of their medication. And that's what we did with her. We used a lot of uh, distraction strategies with her too. We used diaphragmatic breathing to kind of help her with some actual skills when she was feeling those symptoms and the family did a beautiful job of refeeding her and and getting her weight up. And and then at that point, because she had, you know, pre-morbid anxiety and ADHD and depression, um, I did send her to some therapy to help with specific anxiety skills because that continued to be a concern, but her mood completely got better with weight restoration. And so that was a a really important thing for the family to see that the food really was her medicine to help with the, the depressive symptoms. And
0: I'm sure then she was able to engage in therapy in a much better way. Yes. Um. I think these are really important cases to know about because they come up a ton. Another case we often see are kids who are
2: tracking in a higher BMI percentile. Paige, do you want to talk a little bit about those ones? Oh my gosh. This is probably some of the hardest cases in particular, not just for families, but for their providers, for the Mm -hmm. other doctors who are taking care of them. I think one of the best examples was a patient that I saw who much like uh, what Angie described, started having changes in her behaviors at the beginning of quarantine, doing a little bit more exercising and eating less, never ate breakfast started missing lunch because of distance learning. There wasn't a defined lunch period. And then suddenly was eating maybe once a day and started feeling really full, started feeling less hungry. And so cut back even more on what she was eating, her growth chart was actually quite striking. She she went from over 200 pounds to just under 170 pounds uh, in a pretty short period of time. And with that developed some pretty clear symptoms of anorexia, just sort of preoccupation with what she was eating, how much she was eating, thinking about her size all the time to the point that even with the fact that she still had a BMI over the 90th percentile at the time of her presentation, it was clear enough to her providers, wow, this is something that's that's really disordered that she, she came to see me in the eating disorder clinic and realistically said, she described herself as I've always been tall and chunky. And it was something that even since she was younger had been a concern for her. And so this was in her mind, a long-standing issue that she had just been trying to address. But I think what was most sort of obvious in her case was as we started moving through FBT and through treatment, really clearly, I think her family was a little hesitant in the beginning about the idea of her gaining weight back. And as they started to see her symptoms improve, they really started to buy in. They started to see their daughter coming back and they started to see the preoccupations going away. They started to see her mood improve significantly because much like our other cases, she had started to see, you know, experience um, symptoms of depression. Her overall stress levels related to food were much better. Most recently when I've checked in on her, she sort of graduated from our treatment program and now is sort of tracking back along her original BMI and weight percentiles and is doing the best she has in years.
0: That's a question I get asked a lot when you're weight restoring kids who attract in a higher BMI percentile. I get providers being like, well, do we have to weight restore them all the way? Do they have to go all the way back? What's your
2: take on that? I have to just tell them, yes, we have to go there. Cause if we don't, they will slide. And I've had so many cases where we get almost there or part of the way there and, and sort of back off. And then what we notice months down the road is that they've started losing weight and sliding back into all those eating disordered behaviors. What I told this patient's family was the number may be similar or maybe the same when we finish treatment, but the way that she approaches food will be different. So I like to sort of help them understand. I'm not just trying to throw her back into where she was before, because I recognize that her relationship. Relationship with food even prior to developing an eating disorder was not ideal. Our goal is to help improve her cognitions, get her back to a place where she's thinking more clearly about food and following the cues of her body when she's hungry to eat, and then sort of help her start to address and readdress the way she approaches food so that she has a more sort of long-term relationship that's intuitive. That's the idea of listening to my body, giving it what it needs, and, and recognizing that that puts her in a better place in the long run, even with her health outcomes, but especially with her psychiatric outcomes. I like that. I like that a ton. Did you have to do any buffering with messaging from other providers? I found that sometimes with these kids, it can be hard to get the rest of the treatment team on board. In this case, I didn't, I have struggled with that in other cases. This was a case where the primary care provider absolutely backed me up and reinforced the messages that I was giving her and her family. But it's definitely something that I take a special effort to communicate back to the treatment teams in these scenarios to help them understand that we really need to be to number one, recognize the importance of full weight restoration and number two, to Think about how we're approaching these conversations moving forward, you know, because this just gets flagged in the patient's chart. All the screening labs come up, um, and people, if they're not paying attention to her medical history, might be inclined to start having conversations with her about obesity and how she needs to be losing a significant amount of weight. And I think they need to understand that. Our focus for her needs to be on changing her behaviors, making sure that she's really active, making sure she's having good variety in her diet, but it doesn't necessarily need to be focused on the number and the idea of losing weight, because that's really in danger of sliding her back into her eating disorder. We have been
0: talking about treatment of eating disorders with Angie Mackey and Paige Partain. Thank you both for your time. Thanks for having us. It was, it was a pleasure to talk with my friends about some of our favorite (laughs) topics. If you have enjoyed Mayo Clinic's Talks podcast, please follow us on wherever you subscribe to podcasts and for everybody stay healthy and we'll see you next week.